Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode. Thank you for being here. Thank you for pushing that little play button. I really appreciate you. I started this podcast four years ago, which I can hardly believe because I was being really triggered in my parenting and in my role as a mother, my relatively new role as a mother. But none of the usual parenting advice was helping me. In fact, everything that I was reading and listening to and seeing was making me feel much, much worse. So I had this brainwave one day and I looked elsewhere for help. I devoured books on trauma on generational patterning and healing. And I got myself support in each of those areas. And I started to heal and grow on a deeper level than I ever knew possible. It transformed my parenting and how I felt about myself as a mother. And I finally had the courage and confidence to quit my fairly awful and boring corporate job and start doing work in the world that I actually cared about, which became mother kind. And here we are today. So why am I telling you all that? Why did I just take us on a little trip down memory lane? Well, it's because this conversation that you are about to listen to with trauma expert, Dr. Sarah Woodhouse, dives into exactly this. This episode is about trauma and healing and how we do that. But it's really about transformation and how possible it is, no matter what you've been through or are going through, It is so possible to create the life you want, not only for yourself, but for your children too. This is a very deep conversation. It's also a very real one. And I hope that it both informs and inspires you in equal measure. Do me a favour, if you love the podcast, please hit subscribe. It means more than you realise. And share this episode. I really believe that more mums out there need to hear the wisdom and the messages of the guests that we have on every week. So help me do that. Please do share it in your family, your friendship groups, your mum groups, anywhere and everywhere. Please do share it and help me spread this wisdom. Before we get on to this week's episode, I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week. Portable breast pumps are just brilliant, aren't they? They're convenient, fuss-free, and allow us to get on with whatever we need to do hands-free. And the Frau Pal pump is just brilliant. The pump tucks into your bra so you can pump and go with no wires. It has 12 comfort levels. How good is that? It has capacity for 180 ml milk. And I think this bit is really important. The Frau Pal pump is really competitive and an accessible price point. It's actually over £150 cheaper than many of the other hand-free pumps out there. Frau Pau also offer a totally free midwife live chat every Friday on their website. So anyone can head there if you need some advice from a professional midwife, whether you're pregnant, you have a newborn, or you just need some help with your baby. Listeners of the podcast can get 10% off the Frau Pau breast pump at www.fraupau.com. 
fraupow.com with the code motherkind10. That's fraupow.com motherkind10 for 10% off your portable breast pump and see the website motherkind.co for T's and C's. Here is this week's episode. Oh, Sarah, it's such a joy to have you on. And we've got a very good mutual friend, which is we just have. incredible. And I love when introductions like that just flow. And I can't wait for this conversation because I read your book and I found it really healing to read it. So I'm so excited to dive in. That's really lovely feedback that you found it healing, that it was, you know, opening and all of that kind of stuff is great. And you're newly back in the UK. So welcome back. Thank you so much. Yeah, we moved back. Was it a couple of months ago? I mean, it feels like just a heartbeat ago. We were staying with parents when we first landed and got back into our house about six weeks ago. But yeah, we were in Australia for about three years. What was that like? It was amazing. And it was definitely the hardest thing that I've ever done. And I just learned so much about myself. Not all of it good, but useful. One of my favourite phrases, it's just useful information. It's all useful information. And the useful information I learned is that I am not built to travel. <laughs> I thought that I was one of these people that throw st- stuff in a backpack and, and go off traveling and loved that image of me as a mum with this, my th- three kids under my arms and I'd go off and explore. And what I learned is that actually I'm a real home bird and subsequent to arriving home have had some amazing conversations about what that was about, you know, why I found it so hard over there. Because really the plane landed And I used to have generalized anxiety and I have a trauma history and I worked really, really hard not to be anxious. You know, I really did. I did a huge amount of work and I shifted my anxiety. So I'd been living anxiety free for probably, I don't know, five years and the plane touched down in Australia and it just all flooded back. It was the most bizarre thing, you know, subsequent to coming home, having loads of conversations about what was going on, realizing that. I don't come from a place of secure attachment, but I had built it into my life. So, you know, through my marriage, through a house that I love, through routine and friendships and recovery and all this amazing stuff, I had created a secure base for myself. You know, and anyone listening who understands attachment knows that when you have a secure base, it allows you to feel like you can explore. So that's what we want for our kids it's a really good sign when our children, they might run back to us for a cuddle, but they'll go and explore whether it's in a play center or whatever, you know, and and we'll see that throughout the teenage years. We want them to go out into the world and explore. And they do that because they know that home is secure. It's a safe base. And I'd kind of created that for myself and went to explore, you know, I jumped off, I flew and then realized that the way that I had done it was not safe for me because of my trauma history. So it was almost like one step too far. So what I needed to do potentially was go for a shorter amount of time, have it much more structured because it was open. How long will we be there? You know, was maybe it was going to be forever. That was just too frightening for me. So that's what I learned about myself. And that is such useful information. You re-traumatise yourself? Essentially, in various different ways, yes. That's exactly what happened, yeah. But it's all to do with attachment trauma and insecure attachment and secure attachment. And there was a lot going on out there for me personally and, you know, globally. You know, if you think about the context, what was going on in terms of COVID, it was an anxious time anyway. And my anxiety ramped up because, I don't know if you know, but they shut the borders, right? So we couldn't leave. So I'm experiencing this heightened anxiety 
And then suddenly there's this new information whereby I cannot leave. Knowing that you can't leave is the most bizarre feeling. I don't know if you have any friends or family that were in Australia during the time, but it's bizarre. We're used to being able to do what we want to do, right? I live such a privileged life. We all do. We can essentially, you know, usually there's choice. So when it's taken away in terms of movement, freedom of movement, it's a bizarre feeling. So I think that really didn't help. And as you were going through that and the anxiety was coming back, what tools were you going to to try and get yourself through that like how did you get through the time I mean I'm a really big believer in learning how to regulate our bodies so have you heard of somatic experiencing yeah it's amazing and I've worked with a few different SE practitioners over the years and they've all been incredible and had a transformative effect on my body but the thing I've learned from all of them is that regulation learning to regulate our nervous systems is a daily activity we don't just go to a practitioner to be regulated (laughs) that is part of it we have to learn how to do it which is about recognizing when we've gone into fight flight freeze born and then employing the kind of somatic techniques to bring ourselves back down and then widen the window of tolerance that allows us to cope with stress and honestly I was anxious when I was there but I can only imagine how much worse it would have been if I didn't have that knowledge and all of those tools but I had to really work my recovery that's what I did I had to lean into it in a way that I hadn't had to for a really really long time so interesting what you say about daily because what I was thinking about in the context of parenting is that those stresses and those triggers and we'll talk about triggers I'm guessing in more depth but with our children are daily isn't it it's sometimes hourly like this morning by 8 a.m I had sort of broken up three big fights between my kids you know I had one saying you don't spend enough time with me I had the other one saying she wanted daddy to take her to school and I was like wow this is just an hour and my body my nervous system I could really feel it I just wish, and I'm sure you do too, which is why you've written the book, but I wish every mother and parent was taught about trauma and nervous system and regulation because I think that's so much more important than any of the other parenting things that we're taught, right? Yeah, totally. I'm so passionate about it. I mean, it's a cool part of what I do actually now. I work with women to help them do their trauma work and I and I coach and do all sorts of stuff but everyone's always surprised because a big part of my job is that I do case management and what that really means is so it can be really overwhelming knowing where to go to find help and that is especially true if you're a parent so yeah I do feel just so passionate about it so I spend so much time helping parents whose kids are struggling helping them kind of navigate their way through this idea that their kids are kind of stuck in some kind of reaction and the parents are too and helping them find the support they need to resolve it but yeah it's just a key piece of it and it's so often missed they are kind of separate ideas this idea that we all need to learn how to regulate and widening our window of tolerance and also as parents considering okay well when and how and why am I having strong reactions strong overreactions you know, how and when, in what situations. And if there's a repetition of a reaction, that's really what we're always looking for, for trauma. It's a repetitive thing. So when you're seeing repetition of reaction, of strong reaction, then I'd be saying, okay, well, there's something going on in the dynamic of your home or the interactions between you and your partner, you and your kids, whoever, and it's triggering you. And what that means is that it's reminding you 
of a past trauma from your childhood, potentially, or a past relational trauma. And that means there's work to do, you know, so it's less about looking at disciplinary strategies. It's not that that is not the right conversation. We need to do your work. We need to, without any shame at all, because we all carry this stuff. So we can all be triggered. So without shame and with as much honesty and courage as we can, seeing, okay, well, where am I triggered? And where does that come from? And what conversations do I need to do? Or what do I need to do to process that experience so that it stops completely derailing the way I want to parent? It's so profound, really, isn't it? Because as you talk about so beautifully in the book, we all carry trauma, essentially, because it's part of life. And you define sort of big T. And actually, I was blown away by that statistic that 70 to 90% of women have big T trauma. And then the sort of the small scrapes and scuffs and reactions that we have. But it's so fascinating because one of our reactions to that is to deny it, isn't it? It's to want to not go there. So it's this real duality as I see it, that essentially, as you just said, how we want to parent and how we want to be in the world is on the other side of looking at that stuff. Mm. And yet there's so much resistance. There is so much resistance. It always floors me really that that really is this central thing that I have to help clients with or parents with, first of all, because it's coming at us from every angle. So the traumatic reaction is designed to push this experience away. So the definition of trauma that I use, that I think is so helpful, is that trauma is a reaction to a perceived threat that we feel is too big for us to handle. So we feel overwhelmed and confused overwhelmed, confused and out of control. There's that kind of powerlessness element as well. And because we perceive it to be too big for us to handle, we push it away. We can't process it. You know, this phrase unprocessed trauma, we all carry unprocessed trauma. It's a literal thing. So our prefrontal cortex goes offline as our fight, flight, freeze response happens in response to this threat. Now, if we perceive that threat to be something we can handle so you can hear the subjectivity can't you right so it's really subjective what I think I can handle is going to be different to what you think you can handle so we're in this really subjective world of like when does the threat feel too big for someone when do we think we can manage it and when can we not but if we think we can handle it even though the fight flight freeze fawn response will be triggered it will resolve whereas when the traumatic reaction is prolonged it's not resolved. It is unprocessed. The prefrontal cortex is offline and the experience is not filed away neatly into our autobiographical memory. We can't apply meaning in the way that we usually do. So there are these bizarre kind of hot point memories that don't really make any sense and we haven't filed them away. And a response to that is to the fact that we decided that this was too big for us to handle is to avoid it. We can't process it. We can't understand it. So we just kind of go and push it over there. And then, of course, there's this societal stuff as well, which is really, aren't we all programmed to avoid feelings, avoid big feelings? You know, it's okay to feel happy, joyful, free, all of those lovely, glossy feelings. But essentially, I think there is a societal avoidance. They're not even negative feelings. They're just feelings. I never know the word to use because they're just feelings. It's not inherently bad to feel sad or angry. You know, anger is an incredible emotion. 
that is linked to us setting boundaries and hearing our no. But for some reason, we've developed this culture whereby still, although I do understand it's softening, we're all softening around it, aren't we? But still, people of our generation, of our age, that there wasn't much kind of emotional education at all. So in a very long-winded way, I'm trying to say that, you know, the traumatic reaction itself is about avoidance. And also there's this societal pressure to just kind of avoid negative feelings. So I wind up, we all wind up just avoiding these moments that need us to look at them to heal them. They need to be processed, but there is such a huge resistance to us doing that internally and externally. And helpfully or unhelpfully, depending on your lens, our children often are the gateway opportunity in order to do that. There's an amazing story that you share about Jen and Ruth. Can you share that as a sort of example of how our children can be our greatest opportunity, also challenge, to look at this stuff? It's so powerful, that story. You know, I get gooses when I think about her and her experience. So Jen and I met, so my eldest son is nine. So this is nearly 10 years ago that we met when we were pregnant with our first babies. And, you know, we did the NCT thing together and this and that. And she had a difficult time. So she was really anxious after the pregnancy, which is really common. It's not often talked about, but for some reason we always talk in terms of PND, but postnatal anxiety is actually more common than you know, hormonally, we would expect to see that. So she was experiencing all of that. But then by the time her daughter was about two, two and a half, it had become really heightened in that whenever she wasn't with her daughter physically, even for just a moment, she would feel terror and extreme panic that her daughter wasn't okay. So this separation anxiety, that's really what it was, became more and more pronounced around this age so she was about two two and a half and her mother Ruth came to visit her one day and really took Jen's kind of I don't know the phrase just really had a go at her you know said you need to pull yourself together the way you're behaving isn't helping your daughter at all and you're molly coddling her really really sort of did the number on her and also began to talk about the way that she'd parented Jen which it's just so fascinating. So Ruth said, you know, it wasn't like this when I brought you up. I did it in a really no-nonsense way. I sleep trained you. I just got the job done and I was separated from your father. You know, I was doing all of this on my own and I coped. You know, I don't understand why you're not coping. You know, you're married. There are no reasons here for me to understand why you're so anxious and why this isn't working. Really just horrendous response in terms of support and love and all of those things that we need from our mums right and I saw Jen I think it was either that day or the next day and we met at you know one of these awful soft plays where you take kids and she was just so upset really really upset and she was telling me what her mum had said and she also told me that her mum had said that when Jen was about two so the exact age that her daughter that Jen's daughter or was then, as we were sitting in the soft play centre, her mum had been offered an amazing promotion at work that meant that Jen had had to leave this, almost like a baby minder, so there were like four or five other children there, because the baby minder couldn't do extended hours, so she'd had to go into this big preschool with a huge number of children, and she was there from, it was seven until seven, 
So she was doing really long days. And her mum had explained this and how frightened Jen had been and that she had really been so unbelievably distressed when Ruth had dropped her off and then was still really distressed when Ruth came to pick her up. And this lasted and lasted and lasted. So she was there for about, I think, almost a year in this environment that obviously was making her feel incredibly afraid. And Ruth had no other option. There was absolutely no other option than to keep her in there. As we, and we all know that feeling as parents. We don't want to do something, but we have to, you know, to keep the system rolling. We just need to do it. And Chen told me this story and it just clicked. You know, I said, but is that not the same age that your daughter is now? Does that possibly explain what's going on? You know, are you being triggered? So whenever your daughter's on her own, is that bringing back a memory of what happened with you? And I think in the book, I say, you know, it's really hard to explain the intricacies of like unprocessed memory in a soft play centre. So I just gave her some numbers, which I often do, you know, gave some numbers of some therapists that I really rate. And she went off on this journey and it was completely transformative for her. As you say, this extremely difficult dynamic and emotional reaction to her daughter being on her own was her way into healing because she had to do her own trauma work. You know, there was this open wound from her past this year where she had felt so terribly unsafe just after her parents' separation. And, you know, I should say, I was actually contacted by people, parents, who read the book and were panicking about childcare. You know, oh, my daughter, my son gets really upset, really, really distressed when I drop them off. And it's so important to say that little Jen's reaction was so unusual because it was so prolonged. It wasn't the usual week, two weeks, six weeks of distress when when mum or dad drops us off. It was nearly a year. There was no resolution of this reaction. There was no, no change in it. And her reaction wasn't just about that. It was about a broader context of other relational traumas. So, and that was the work Jen did. It started looking at this trauma that she knew about, but each trauma stacks on top of the next. So as she worked with a therapist looking at this trauma from her past about this childcare centre and her attachment to her mum, it drew her attention to others because that's how trauma works. Each reaction sets us up for the next one. So when we have these triggered reactions today, if you go back and do the work looking at that experience, what you're most likely going to find is that there will be others that come up along the way. And it really does open up this kind of field and and network of healing. As you were talking, I was just thinking, sometimes I feel like it is so unfair that those of us who carry, you know, trauma, which we've said is pretty much everyone. Mm, Absolutely. You know, at a time when we're trying to grapple with this new role of being a parent, whether it's our first or our fifth child and everything that comes with that. And then we're also having these old memories reactivated and having to do that work. And, you know, my greatest passion is doing that work. And that's what we talk about on the podcast every single week. But sometimes I feel like, God, it's hard, isn't it? To be doing just the normal work of parenting and life on top of, you know, this deeper unpacking. And so I'm wondering if you can share a bit more about the prize on the other side, (laughs) because I think it's so important to keep moving towards that light. And you use the word transformation. You've said it a few times. So what would a transformation look like? Where would someone move from and to? Because when you're in the middle of going through this, it's hard and it's messy, isn't it? I've been Mm. there and you've been there. What does life feel like differently when you've 
begun to do that healing, as you said, that daily work of nervous system reset? How does it feel different? The image that came to mind as you said that, when I picture myself or when I imagine any of my clients at the beginning of the journey, the image I have is that the reaction just pops out of them. So there's no control. I don't know if you can relate to that, but that's the, certainly the space that I was in for a really long time with my parenting was having these overreactions. They weren't always verbal. You know, it wasn't that I was constantly losing it at the kids. I was sometimes, you know, it wasn't that it was internal reaction. You know, these, oh gosh, when I think of it, like that shame spiral, you know, where you just, that fog comes down, your whole body just begins to shut down because your shame has been triggered or this internal fear and panic. Or of course, sometimes it is an external reaction and I'm shouting, but there's no control over the reaction. They just pop out. I don't know if you can relate to that. And it makes you feel so very out of control. One of my big ones is self-blame. So I go there first. So I'm actually not a shouter. I shout inwards. Mm. I just blame myself. It's just Mm. that constant where it used to be. You know, it's much, much better now. But I think it's really powerful for you to talk about that, that, you know, so much of my trauma has been inner critic, berating myself, shame. I used to overthink everything, every conversation. I would like dissect it. Did I say something wrong? That horrible hypervigilance. And I don't do that anymore. It's an awful space to be in. It's horrible. It's It's so painful. It's exhausting. It is exhausting. And I think that's where so much of my passion comes from, actually, because being in that place and Mm. having children, it's just, Mm. yeah, it's really hard, isn't it? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe, non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash motherkind. It is exhausting. And I think the two points I'd say is that what you've just described, so that triggered inner critic plus that overthinking are signs of relational trauma. They're signs that something's gone on within a relationship, within a relational context when you were younger, that's made you feel really overwhelmed, out of control and threatened. So that's the first thing is that they are a sign that there's something there. And I suppose just drawing people's attention to that idea that the inner critic, I think one piece of this whole trauma conversation that that I think often is missed, I think we're getting much better at understanding the somatics of it, what it feels like in terms of fight, flight, freeze. But I still don't think there's enough of a conversation or an understanding about how it affects our thinking. Because actually, I think, you know, if people, a lot of people say to me, well, how do I start this work? What do I need to do? And really what you're trying to understand first off is when and how am I triggered? 
And looking at your thinking is a really important piece of that. I think it's really helpful to understand that when we're triggered, a different part of us will take the lead. The woman I want parenting my kids is strong, adult, 40-year-old me. That's who I want to be parenting my kids. But when I'm triggered, one of three takes over. It's either my inner child, it's either my inner teenager, or it's my inner critic, which essentially is the internalized voice of our parents. So it's going to be one of those three models. And it's useful information. So when your inner critic goes off, when that just jumps out at you, you've been triggered. You do not need to take what is being said seriously. What you need to do is help yourself feel safe because all of this, irrespective of where our triggered reaction pushes us, whether it's fight, flight, freeze, which part of us is triggered, behaviorally, you know, where it goes, it all comes from a place of fear. And that's the central point. Something, a part of you is really, really afraid right now. So responding with self-blame, self-criticism is going to increase the fear, not decrease the fear. So everything is about pulling down the sense of fear, helping ourselves feel safe, which is why, you know, hear so much nowadays about reparenting ourselves, don't we? Which is about coming from a place of love instead of a place of criticism and fear and anger. But I think that idea that these reactions just jump out of us, then when I imagine myself now, or you said, where do we move from and to now I feel in control. There's just this sense, everything's slowed down. The truth is, I'm still triggered. Definitely I am. But now it's like everything happens in slow motion. I see it. I feel it. I feel it in my body. I'm aware of what's going on. I see it hit my thinking. And I can re-regulate. I can bring myself back quickly. I'm going to say not always. There are some triggers from my past that are so very strong. I need to leave the room or maybe I even need to call a friend to help me regulate or co-regulate with them. But that's the difference, I think, is I move from this very reactive, out of control life around my children where reactions are just flying out of me to feeling, I don't know if even in control is the right word, but it just feels like everything's slowed down, less reactive, it's calmer. And because of that, there's less fear. I don't know if you can relate to that journey. Yeah, well, in recovery, you and I share that, you know, we're Mm. both 12-steppers. There's Mm. an incredible phrase, which is, can I respond and not react? Yes. When I first heard that, I actually still remember where I was about 14 years ago, because I was like, oh my gosh, I realized I was reacting. Someone would say something, I would react. You know, my boss would ask me to do something, I would react. Normally it was stress and fear the whole time stress and fear stress and fear you know someone invite me to something stress and fear what am I going to wear (laughs) it was constant absolutely and now I think what you're describing so beautifully is that empowered place actually where we can respond take a breath and you talked about some of those in the moment tools and I just said take a breath which I know is one of them what are some of those tools in the moment that we can use to calm our system And anyone can use this. You don't have to have done your deep trauma healing work, right? To know that you're triggered and pick up a tool. So what would some of those be? 
it sounds so simple, doesn't it? It does seem to be the solution to everything in modern life is just to breathe. So I can understand that people must be like, what, another self-help book telling me to breathe? But it really is. I'm sure you've heard of polyvagal breathing. You know, it's, it's, thank goodness, it's becoming really well understood now. So there's a certain technique we can use with breathing that I do it all the time. And I'm not kidding. I do it all the time, especially when I'm at all elevated. If I can feel too much adrenaline, if I feel a little bit anxious, whatever it is, I just immediately come back to this style of breathing, which is a deep breath into your belly. So it's belly breathing, essentially. So in for the count of four, slow count, and then exhale for the count of eight. I get that it is just breathing. I've basically just told everyone to breathe and they have heard of that before. But the clever thing about this breathing is that because you're exhaling for longer, it sort of vibrates the diaphragm in a way that triggers this nerve here, which is the gateway to the parasympathetic nervous system. So this will release the necessary sort of hormones to stop the adrenaline. And it's like any tool in recovery, trauma healing, whatever, the more you use it, the better it works, which is why I do it all the time. I use it day in, day out, because then when I need it in the moment, when I'm really triggered, it works and it works quickly. So it's a great one in for four, out for eight, as slow as you possibly can. Setting off this nerve is all about vibration. So even just humming can be really good. And VU, which I loved, if you heard of the VU breath, that's a good one. You take a deep inhale into your belly. And then as you exhale, you just for as long as you possibly can. And these are great tools to use with your kids. I heard my son a couple of days ago vooing in his room and it makes me giddy with joy because all of our children will experience traumatic reactions. They will. It is part of life. They will have their fight, flight, freeze, response will go off multiple times. And what we know now in the research is that it happens a lot in childhood because if you think of that definition I said, you know, trauma happens when you see a threat that feels too big for us to handle, right? If you imagine childhood, an awful lot feels threatening, right? And often the threat can appear too big for us to handle. So we need to A, be able to recognize what fight, flight, freeze looks like in our kids and also practice tools for ourselves and give them the tools to help them re-regulate after it's gone off. Parenting is really, really hard. There are many moments where I just think, oh my God, what am I doing here? I have no idea. This is the worst longitudinal study ever run. I'm just, I'm just guessing. It's just guesswork on a daily basis. So you have to really lean into the winds, don't you? Because it's not like a job. A friend of mine said to me, I just wish there was someone that would give me a gold star or give me an appraisal. You're completely running blind and you have to lean into the moments that are a win. And walking past my son's room, hearing him do polyvagal breathing so he could calm down after an argument with his sister was a massive win. So I'm holding that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it's even better, isn't it? Because we can co-regulate with them. So the other day, oh God, picked the kids up from school, both of them, one's six, one's two. Rose, my little one, just lay on the pavement and just wouldn't get up because she wanted daddy to pick her up, not me. My six-year-old was going absolutely ballistic because I bought her the wrong snack. And I was just sat in the car and I just started to laugh. I was like, this is ridiculous. You know, I was just laughing at how 
I could feel my system. So I said to us all, because we've done this a lot, like you said, it wasn't the first time I'd used this tool. I was like, we're going to do our breathing. And I just started doing it. I was like, I'm not moving the car. And because I've done it tons of times, they were quicker to get to it, I think. And we were just breathing. And then we started laughing. And then I said, I was really sorry for bringing the wrong snack. And I understood, you know, that you've probably been thinking about the snack and expecting the snack and did all that stuff. And put a song on and it was fine by the time we got home and I was like oh my god like first of all I was like parenting is wild <laughs> but also I thought I'm just so grateful for you know wisdom of teachers like you who are making these tools because I knew what was happening in that moment you know my system was being totally triggered and so was theirs and it was a hot mess but it's just incredible it is just breathing but I think the tools have to be simple because if it was like a 10-step plan, no one would use it, would we? It's just too hard. So it is simple. And I think it's that fine line between eye rolling, because something's really simple, like, can it really make that big a difference? But knowing that it does work and just testing it out and knowing there's so much evidence and research behind these really simple tools, I think is really powerful, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's true. And I just love that example you gave. I remember speaking to a somatic therapist and and we were talking through tools I can use with the children. And she said, laughter is one of the best ways to help them regulate. So obviously don't turn every disaster into a joke. That would be very, it's unvalidating a word. You know, we shouldn't do that. But the fact that you laughed and then we're able to bring that energy to them is amazing, you know. When I think about trauma and healing I love how you talk about that there isn't this sort of roadmap that everyone's the same because I think sometimes it can feel a bit like that particularly with how sort of maths which is incredible it's getting you talk about healing being you know very unique to each of us can you talk to that because we talked about how someone might know if they have this trauma I mean sort of everyone we've talked about looking at your triggers and unpacking it, where does someone then go? We've talked about tools to use in the moment. If someone's listening, thinking, great, 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 great. I want to go deeper. I want to be like Jen in your story who gets that transformation on the other side. Where does someone start, particularly in the UK, you know, access to somatic therapies and on the NHS is sort of non-existent and the wait lists are really high. So how does someone start to navigate this journey? That is very true. I've come up against that very fact over the last week, actually, trying to get parents the support that they need and realising the lack of really great, especially somatic therapists that are available there. There is so much that people can do at home. There really is, especially in the somatic space, I would say, that there is great books out there Healing Trauma, Peter Levine's book. I don't know if you've come across that one, but it's it's kind of a self-help, do-it-yourself version of somatic experiencing that you can actually do at home. So he teaches a kind of basic regulation techniques and how to begin like somatically processing and releasing trauma. Wherever you look, there are books like that. You know, there's obviously there's mine if people want that kind of overview. Francine Shapiro, who started EMDR, which is a very well-known treatment for trauma that 
processes. It's a great treatment. Uh, somatic, obviously, is processing physically, or at least the way in is the body. This is more cognitive, but there's a somatic aspect to it as well. It's a great treatment. She wrote a book called, I think it's called Getting Past Your Past. And that's great. And that really will explain to people this idea of unprocessed memories. So yes, wait lists are long. There isn't the treatment. I wish that there was, I wish I could press a button and that everyone could be able to see who they can, but there is so much that we can do at home to empower ourselves. You know, if people can pay privately, what they're looking for, I would say, is somatic experiencing, as I've said, if you can find a great somatic practitioner to help, that's a great way in. EMDR or internal family systems is great. It's really taking off at the moment. And the combination of the three of those is fantastic. But also unprocessed trauma is unprocessed. And there are loads of different ways we can process it to release it, right? One of which is talking. So have conversations, ideally, of course, with a therapist who really gets trauma. But if you can't afford to, and if that person isn't available, speak to people that you trust. The trust piece is really important. Don't overshare with people that you don't trust, but with best friends, with family members that you really, really do feel securely attached with, talk to them. All right. I mean, you know this because of recovery, right? Journaling. I must have spent 10 years journaling, just journaling, 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 journaling. It's really powerful. It helps you process. It helps you understand, assimilate the information and release. There is a release there. So keeping that phrase in mind it's about processing I think can be really helpful to kind of lead the way I'm glad that you mentioned recovery I don't talk about it so much on the podcast actually although it's you know 90% of my story if I'm honest is that so much of our traumatic reactions can lead to those addictive behaviors whether it's alcohol or shopping or tech or work or process you know relational codependency love addiction you know and I genuinely feel like the 12-step programs are the best kept secret for a reason, you know, because they're all anonymous. But I also feel quite passionately about signposting people that way as well, because it's totally free. A lot of it's online at the moment. You don't even have to leave your bedroom. The support and love and compassion, you know, I really learned to love myself by being loved by people in those anonymous rooms first. Yeah, I totally agree. I do. And when I, when I first got into recovery, I, I do remember this like evangelical feeling of like, I just wish everyone could be in it. How can I get everyone in it? Because it's so good to say that, that that has been a totally central piece of my healing. I wouldn't be who I am today. I wouldn't be as healthy as I am today, as happy if I hadn't been through the fellowship. And I think there's maybe some misunderstanding because it's interesting, it is about behaviours, but clients are always really amazed when I say, you know, if you thought about 12-step and explain that trauma and addiction go hand in hand and there's all of these compulsive behaviours that go along with it. And, you know, there's often a defensive response of, well, I don't have a drinking problem, I don't have a drug problem, I, my food is fine, whether that's all true or not is another question. But then I say, okay, and what about your relationships? what's going on there and we do begin to talk about codependence and people pleasing as you say those process addictions that if you have a trauma history most likely have developed along with you they're adaptations we develop to help us navigate relationships because they're a really painful space 
so there's that but then also there's ACA which again is really confusing for people because it's adult children of alcoholics only the full title is adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families and again when I say that to people there's sort of this pause of oh okay yeah maybe that is me (laughs) who hasn't got a dysfunctional exactly (laughs) but I agree it's such an incredible structure it's free and I think also one of the tools in the book that I say at the end and I think people often are a little bemused at the fact that I mentioned it is I think I phrase it's like find your tribe something like that but I know how important it is within this space if you've got a trauma history especially relational trauma we're going to have I won't go into the details, but what we need are new, healthy relationships that are boundaried, that allow us to be ourselves, where people are communicating in a really clean way. And sometimes old relationships are struggle with that. They struggle with the changes that we might make in recovery or in trauma healing. So just the fact that, as you said, you're meeting a group of people who are trying to learn how to communicate cleanly, who are reading endlessly about boundaries and what they look like and what they feel like, who are learning that it's okay to say no and to state a resentment. You know, if you've got a charge with someone, if a resentment is developing, okay, let's work through it. What does that look like? Where is it coming from? Without shame, i.e. it's not actually about the other person at all. It's always about us, you know? So it's a safe space where people can practice relationships essentially which is so necessary. That's exactly my experience of it. It's exactly my experience of recovery. And I've, you know, for a while I was a bit of a tourist and I was trying all sorts, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong. You know, I need to judge myself a bit for that, you know, that I didn't settle in one for a while, which, you know, I have now found my home in, in Al-Anon. But yeah, I just feel, I feel like it's been such a huge part of my healing because we have that in common. I think it was really powerful to share a bit about, our own experiences of that. Is there anything else that you think is really important and you want parents to know or consider or to hear as part of this conversation? I suppose in terms of helping our kids, I think understanding, I know I've said that, but understanding how common that fight, flight, freeze response is and learning what it looks like you know, it's not rocket science. Fight is going to be kicking, screaming, punching, you know, flight. There's going to be restlessness. There's going to be, you know, that kind of movement or they're just going to peg it. (laughs) My daughter is, it's constant, you know, she has a very strong flight response to any kind of disagreement or sense of criticism. Um, (laughs) Mine too. She did it last night. She lost a game that we were playing and I invited her to say well done to me because I'd won (laughs) and she just pegged it. And hid in a little ball of shame. Oh, yeah. My daughter too. My daughter too. I have exactly the same. And it is. I find that triggering. I can be triggered by my sensing, or is it true? But I am certainly projecting shame onto her, if you know what I mean. I don't know if she is, but I am projecting my own felt past experience of shame onto her. And then that makes it very hard for me to navigate the situation from a calm grounded place and actually that brings me on to what I was going to say is that we always have to put the oxygen mask on first so it's a great example so before I go to my daughter now I used to just kind of race after her I would join her in her stress 
right? So I would see her triggered reaction and I would go up there too. My nervous system met hers where it was, which was highly elevated and panicking because it reminded me of my past pain. I don't want her to feel shame. I don't want her to run off like that. So I panicked. And now I've learned that I have to calm myself first. So that's the first piece for people to understand really is before you race after them, or not even race after them, but before you try and help them regulate, you have to regulate yourself first. And that, <laughs> here we go, breathing again, eye roll. You know, that can be polyvagal breathing. It might mean that you need to leave the room and that's okay. Take a time out, do what you need to do, ground yourself, feet on the floor, you know, moving your head, noticing what's going on around you, just bringing yourself back. I'm a big, big believer in finding the right affirmation to kind of reconnect us to ourselves today. So for me, often that's, okay, I'm a strong woman. I'm a great mother. I'm 40 years old. It's understanding. Do you remember what I said about the fact that a different part of us is triggered? It's always the case. So in that moment, when I'm experiencing that shame, it's my inner child. So I need to help her feel safe. It's okay. You've got this. Everything's okay. Calm. I've got this. I've got you reconnecting to my adult self, coming back to the moment and then going to help my daughter. Because if my inner child meets her inner child, her child, my child, it will not go well. My inner child cannot parent. She really can't. So I need to come back to the moment today. So that's the first thing really. And then the other thing I would say is not being afraid to let them do what they need to do because trauma is an unresolved reaction. So something's happened to interrupt. We couldn't respond in the way that we wanted to, essentially. So the cycle couldn't complete. We had a huge internal reaction, but we couldn't respond. It's those words again. So the reaction was all internal, but we couldn't follow through. A good example of that might be from childhood. Say you're sitting, being really verbally attacked by your father, say, and he's kind of, you know, standing over you and you're sitting on the sofa. Every fiber of your being wants to run off, but you can't. And that's when we're in the trauma zone. That's an unresolved reaction. You couldn't follow through. The cycle couldn't be completed. You couldn't respond in the way that you wanted to. So allow your children to let them run off, let them shout, let them release. If you think of emotions as energy, that can be really helpful. Let them express. Trauma is all about being stuck, right? So we want things to move. However that is, trust the body, trust the feelings, allow them to release. And it will, you know, and of course, if over time you realize they're actually stuck, that there's a repetition, then that's when maybe you need extra support. I've had a ton of extra support with my kids. There's absolutely no shame in it. It's a smart move. And if you can see that actually you're allowing the reaction to run, but what's happening is that it's constantly repeated. So they almost are stuck in the reaction. Does that make sense? They're stuck somewhere. They don't know how to bring themselves back. So you need Precise. to teach it or find a professional who can teach who it can to help. you and you can teach it to them. Exactly. Yeah. And it has amazed me, actually. I've worked with this amazing somatic therapist. She's in L.A., and I contacted her because of one of my kids and, you know, can you work with my daughter? And, and she was like, yeah, yeah, sure. And I did seven sessions with her. My daughter hasn't spoken to her once, but our relationship has been transformed. My daughter's capacity to regulate has been transformed. Do you see what I mean? So often the intervention is with the parent, 
especially with young kids, obviously that's not the case with older teens, but with younger kids, if we do the work, we can help our children regulate. And often that, that is the process. Yeah. And we're the best, you know, as the mother or the father or any caregiver actually, because there's love in the equation, right? Which makes the co-regulation so much easier, I think. Absolutely. But also, I'm sure you've thought this, I don't know, but I'm guessing you have, because I'm a perfectionist, I intellectualize everything. I overthink things. I remember the moment where I realized I didn't have to know everything about parenting, you know, especially if you come from a place where the relationships might've been tricky, that you weren't necessarily parented in the way that you wish that you were. How on earth can you know? So giving ourselves grace around that, you know, anyone listening, it's okay. It really is okay if you don't know how to help your children regulate. How would you know? Either we come from a place of being extremely securely attached and it's happening naturally, or like the vast majority of us, we need to be taught. I was taught, you know, so just lifting that shame, I think, of this perception that we should know intuitively as a mother I should just know exactly what to do at every moment certainly it's not been my experience that's why I started Motherkind because I had been in recovery what how many years eight years when I had Jessie who's now six and um couldn't believe how everything came up as we've talked about everything was brought to the surface and then I would buy these parenting books I'd be like it's fine my way out is to study and intellectualize And I found that a really dark and scary place because a lot of the parenting books I was reading were just assuming that I could hold a boundary. I wasn't be able to hold a boundary with my daughter. Her reaction was flooding me and then I would give in. I felt like that's why I started this because I felt like that was a whole missing piece of the conversation, which is like what's going on with the parent. Mm. And I think it's so fantastic that you shared that story, A, of you getting support with your daughter, because I think lots of people think there's some shame in that. Mm. You know, I do this for a job. I speak to incredible people like you every day. I have so much help with myself and my parenting. I think I have like four people supporting me Mm. in my life at the moment, professionally, you know, coaches, healers, therapists. That's just what I need when I, because I've come from, you know, a dysfunctional place. And so I think that's really powerful for people to hear and that the work was with you and it's transformed the relationship. It's just, it's so the opposite to generally it's changing, isn't it? What we're taught parenting is about. It's just the opposite because as you said earlier on, it's really all about self-parenting, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. As you said, parenting books, I got the heebie-jeebies. I can picture them all. Oh, just the endless reading, trying to figure it out. I'll tell you which one pushed me over the edge. I won't (laughs) name it because it's not fair. But there was one where Jessie was just crying nonstop. And it was like, I remember reading it, sleep deprived. And it had this table in it. And it said, identify your baby's cry. And I think it said, a mother's instinct means they'll be able to identify their baby's cry. This pitch means hungry, this pitch. And I just burst into tears. I was like, all her cries sound the same. I cannot tell what each effing cry means. I just want the crying to stop. But it says that if I'm a good mother, I should know. Honestly, I do remember throwing the book in the bin, which felt quite good. Yes. But yeah, broke me. It absolutely broke me. And I was yeah. like, this book is still sold. It's unreal, isn't it? It's unreal, it the pressure that some of that literature, again, why I started this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I need some better resources, so I better create one. <laughs> yeah. Which is what I tried to do. 
And we all do it, don't we? A friend called me and she's just had her first baby and she was talking about a book and I won't name it. And I feel so bad and I'm doing this wrong and I'm doing... And she was so, so upset. And I said, you know, in my sage way with now a nine-year-old son, I was like, if it doesn't make you feel good, if it's not validating anything that you're doing, you need to close the book and maybe even put it in the bin. The point of those kind of books is to empower us. The point is to make us better mothers and fathers. If they're doing the opposite, you have to walk away from it. And I didn't for a really long time because I like to, I don't like to, but I come from a place where beating myself up feels really, really familiar and therefore quite comfortable. Not just beating myself up, but endlessly figuring things out. You know, if I just keep reading and reading and reading and reading, I'll eventually figure this whole parenting thing out. And actually for me, it was definitely about closing the books and coming back to the body, you know, coming back to the moment and getting actual support. Definitely. Thank you for sharing that. I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I know exactly what I'm going to say. And if she's listening, I'm saying this on behalf of my dearest friend, Sally, sleep. I would gift you all sleep because I don't know about you, but I don't get half enough of it. I mean, my son's nine and still, I mean, he was up twice in the night. I am so tired. I am tired, like right down into my bones. It's a tiredness I never even think it was possible. And hopefully Sally's laughing if she's listening because, uh, we just talk about this endlessly, you know, it's daily conversations. Oh my goodness, I'm so tired. No, I'm so tired. Oh my goodness. How much sleep did you have? Oh no, three hours. Oh, that's bad. Oh no, it gets better. So I would gift every mother a year's sleep. Be incredible. Yeah. And avoid all of those books, yes. accounts which tell us that sleep is the number one important thing that you need in order to thrive and be well. Well, there's oh. a whole section of society called mothers <laughs> for whom that's not available very often. <laughs> I don't even know how we're doing it. I should know I shouldn't say this because I'm supposed to be promoting self-care and all the rest of it. I have had five coffees this morning and it's 11 o'clock. So that's just an indication of how much sleep I got last night. Does your nervous system not react to that? I can't have caffeine. Actually, it really does depend. If I'm at all anxious, I definitely can't have it. So I need to be quite careful. But also I very easily get hooked into things. So it's really easy for me to be anxious, you know, like go, 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 not need caffeine, but have it anyway. Cause I just want to keep going up, 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 up. So I have to be, I have to be very honest and careful. In fact, maybe that was a bit of a wake up call. I'm going to commit now publicly to not having another coffee today. Fingers crossed I can do it. <laughs> well, the coffee served you well because you've been incredible and this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. So Thank you for your time. Where can people find you and your work? And are you taking on any clients at the moment? I'm not taking on clients at the moment, just because I'm about to launch a course, which I'm so excited about. So that does go live in, well, I keep, uh, it should be in about three weeks. It'll be live for people to register for. And that's a great way to join in and get the support that you need. It's called The Freedom Process. And you can see all the details on my website, which is www.sarahwoodhouse.com. And I'm everywhere on social. I'm at the Sarah Woodhouse on Instagram and the same on Facebook and on Twitter. I'm at SN underscore Woodhouse. Amazing. Thank you. That course sounds incredible. I'll pop that in the show notes for people to find the link to it. Thank Thank you you so much. It's been an absolute honour. Thank you so, so much for having me on. It's been great. 
So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.